it's safe to say that only the Word of God is fit to follow something like that. Uh, and so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your great love for us that was shown on the cross. And Lord, as we are reminded this morning of our rapid approach to remembering your death and our rapid approach to remembering your resurrection, Lord Jesus, we pray that as we turn to your word, that we again would be refocused on what you did to us, on how magnificent of a Savior you are and the better promises that you have given us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It has been well documented, and I've said it multiple times right here, I'm not the handiest of men, uh, as you can see. Um, the problem, and we won't revisit that specific instance, uh, that is my literal handiwork, uh, the problem is that I know just enough to really get myself in trouble. Um, and so there have been several times, uh, especially when I was a new homeowner, uh, before I learned some of the lessons I've learned, that I didn't yet, and when I didn't yet realize my limitations, that I got in way over my head and had to reach out to help. And what would happen is, is some scenario would unfold where I started fixing something, it inevitably went wrong. Uh, I knew what went wrong. I knew what needed to happen for it to go right, but I didn't know how to get from point A to point B, so I would get some sort of tool and try to make it magically become another tool and get myself in more trouble and then would call someone more experienced who would come over with the right tool and usually in a matter of minutes have my problem fixed because they had the knowledge, the skill, and the resource to do what I could not. And you guys laugh at my handyman failures, and I get it. It's, I rightfully deserve all the mockery I receive. But I think we can relate to this problem. I think we can relate to not having the skill, not having the knowledge, not having the resource to get ourselves out of our own predicament that we created. And, and where we most commonly find this is our, is our problem with sin, that we Sin, and then we try to like, you know what, I know, I know what, where I need to be, I know where I should be, I know where I am, and I don't know how to get from point A to point B, and so instead of asking for help, I'm going to try and solve this myself, and we use sinful solutions to our sinful problem, and we make it worse. And it's just what we do over and over and over again. We are just all too good at it. And Hebrews has been telling us, among other things, that what we need is something that can make us who are deeply fallen in every aspect of our life, something that can make us perfect. And this epistle is very honest with the first covenant's ability to expose our sin, to provide continual reminders of our sin, through continual sacrifices and its inability to actually separate our sin from us. We don't need Hebrews to tell us our sin is a problem. We don't need Hebrews to tell us 
that we need to have our sins removed from us and for something to make us perfect. We know that. The problem is that when we continually look in our own personal toolbox of sanctification, we, all we find is that it's full of Ikea wrenches, odds and ends, and worn out and dead batteries that are all labeled, just try harder. That's why we need Hebrews, because our toolbox isn't good enough. Everything else we could try will fall short. And we need Hebrews, especially the first 10 chapters, to tell us over and over and over again that we need the Son of God who is our priest, who goes before us to offer a sacrifice, and we need a priest to go on behalf of us, to God, go on our behalf to offer a sacrifice. We need a truly incredible priest offering a once-in-all-time sacrifice that is infinitely more capable than any sacrifice that has been offered, than any sacrifice that could be offered to... I love it. Uh, <laughs> we need a priest whose ministry is not in an earthly tent, but one who goes as a forerunner on our behalf to the Holy of Holies, to the throne room of heaven. We need a priest whose ministry will never, ever end and who will bring a new law that comes with a new hope and a better covenant. And Hebrews not only tells us of our need, but tells us that Jesus is this priest. And that we should stop trying, apart from the finished work of Jesus, to fix our own sin. Because only Jesus can do that. Only he has the skill, only he has the resource to fix this problem that we continue to only find ourselves deeper and deeper into. He is as our text said last week, and as it says again today, he is such a priest. And so let's read about this priest we have in Jesus. We're reading Hebrews 8 this morning. Now the point in saying is this, and the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since he enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. 
and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete has grown old and is ready to vanish away. What a word we have this morning. And so, as we dig a little deeper into Hebrews 8, there's just such great news. And here's the news. It's true. We have such a priest who is our minister before God the Father. Jesus is your minister before God the Father in heaven. What else could we want? This is amazing. This is great news. And he's our minister in the true tent. I will never know what it's like to be a first century Jew hearing this word. The tabernacle was a shadow of the heavenly things. It's just a copy. And to, to see in the, in the Old Testament mind, just how substantial and significant the tabernacle was at this tent where God would come and dwell among his people on earth, where sacrifices could be offered, and then to learn that this is a shadow, this is, this is just a copy, and then to think, well, how great then is Christ? How excellent is he? How excellent is this salvation and this covenant? If that one was just a copy and a shadow, then this one must be truly great. And Hebrews, and Hebrews goes on to say, he goes, this is why Moses had to follow these instructions. This is why every year in your Bible reading plan, when you get to the tabernacle, you're like, this is insanely intricate. This is like a legal document. Like, I need someone else to read this for me because I don't know what half these colors even are. How many gold rings do you really need to hold up a curtain? Apparently a lot. And all of this attention given to really a pretty small tent that they could just pack up and travel and then reset somewhere. Why was all this attention given? Because it was pointing to the real holy of holies, where real forgiveness of sins would one day take place. This was not random. God giving the tabernacle was him providing a significant and substantial ministry to the priests that they would enact on behalf of the people. This tabernacle was more significant than just any other plain tent, from the outside at least, set up in the desert. This was a, a copy of, 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 essentially, it was to bring heaven to earth. 
And it points to the real work that only Christ could do. Verse 4 is kind of odd for us. Now, if he were on earth, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And this is, this is talking again about how Jesus, he's not from Levi. His priestly work was not on earth. His priestly work, when Jesus died on the cross, this miraculous thing happened where a sacrifice was offered in the real dwelling place of God, in the real place that the tabernacle was based on. He is the priest. Because unlike the Levitical priests who were ministering on earth in a place made by hands that actually had to be purified once it was made because it, it, had to, it was made by sinful people through the inerrant word of God, Jesus went to the perfect actual place. When I was a kid, there was a gentleman at our church Dick Trimble, he's a good man. I look forward to seeing him in glory again one day. Dick would occasionally, when the weather was good and all the salt was washed off the roads, he'd drive to church in his 1940 Ford Deluxe that was in pristine original condition. I did not even have a learner's permit yet, and I loved that car. It was a cool car. I would, he would, I'd have him give me a tour of like everything in the car. The back windows didn't roll down, they rolled back. It was amazing. Had a stick shift right up on the steering wheel, the three on the tree. Is that what it's called? It was so cool. Thank you for that affirmation. None of you ever say amen, but if I say three on the tree, there's a bunch of you that are like, oh, Glory. May the Lord sanctify all of you a little bit more, huh? <laughs> Come on. I love that car. So Dick one day gave me in a box a model of a 1944 coupe, just the smaller version of that. And it was cool. I actually never put it together. <laughs> but let's say I had. It never would have been as good as the actual thing. It would have been this cool little trinket I had, and it never would have been as great as the actual 1940 Ford Deluxe with original seats. The tabernacle was significant, but it was pointing to the real work that was to come. It was pointing to the real substance it was a vivid shadow, but a shadow nonetheless. And, and one of the messages to, the, to the, those first Jewish believers was to don't let your physical eyes distract your heart's eyes from what really happened here. Let's be honest. There's not a man in this room who looks at his wife's shadow on the sidewalk to describe her beauty. One commentator says this, the first generation who heard this Hebrew sermon needed to realize that Jesus had offered the final sacrifice for sins and entered a sanctuary that though unseen by human eyes radiates a reality that casts the earthly Zion in the shadows. He goes on to say, we too 
may confuse what is most visible with what is most significant. Hebrews disabuses us of that confusion by opening our heart's eyes to the heavenly sanctuary Moses glimpsed on Sinai, where Jesus intercedes for us and mediates a new covenant, binding us to God. I want to read that last part again. Hebrews disabuses us of the confusion of, our, of the real work of the kingdom happening here on earth. That's what he's talking about. By opening our heart's eyes to the heavenly sanctuary, Moses glimpsed on Sinai, where Jesus intercedes for us and mediates a new covenant binding us to God. In the first century, and probably maybe still today with some, there's this guilt of looking at the tabernacle temple ministry of God as the most significant and missing the cross. And we too can be guilty, not, of, not necessarily of looking at that, that shadow, because we're good goyim, we're good Gentiles, we don't confuse that, but we look for other shadows of other things that we confuse with the kingdom of God. And we can get caught looking for someone to come or do something that we can physically see, someone who will usher in our version of God's kingdom, and we don't, with faith, ask for God's will to be done and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm so grateful that Jesus never took up any of the multiple chances he had to build an immediate kingdom on earth the way so many wanted him to do. But he did his work in heaven, building his kingdom by his way, really building God's kingdom by God's way, submitting to the Father, May we keep our heart's eyes focused on what Jesus has done and what he is actually doing and drawing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. Another thing I want us to see, so he's our minister, Jesus is our minister before God in the true tent, in the, in the true sanctuary. And, and this is actually going back to verse one. He is sitting down. He's our, our minister who's sitting down. The point of what we were saying is this, verses one and two, uh, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. He's sitting because he's done for now. This is in contrast with all the other priests. We don't have in, in, the, in, the, in the instructions for the tabernacle, there's not a lazy boy. Because the priest was up and active offering sacrifices and they got out of there as soon as they were done. Jesus goes in, he offers the sacrifice and he sits. He's done. He's not busy around doing the same thing day in and day out. He offered one sacrifice for all time and he sat down. His priestly ministry for us can be done now from the seated position as he's next to God mediating for us on our behalf. It was, the, the, the tabernacle was a shadow. Pointing to the substance. Pointing to what's actually casting the shadow. And in this case, the first covenant was, was a casted shadow by the better covenant that Jesus enacted at the cross.
And the first covenant was not without flaw, as Hebrews has told us time and time again, but it pointed to the one that is. And it points to the fact that we have such a priest who enacts a better covenant. He enacted a better covenant. And, and, and Hebrews goes into a pretty lengthy section here based on, on some of the previous scripture references from the Old Testament. He, Hebrews loves to bring out just little snippets of verses. But here he quotes a whole passage out of Jeremiah. A passage that was given at like the height of Israel's rebellion, at the, at the height of their, of their punishment and their wickedness as they're getting ready to be escorted out of the Holy Land into captivity by Babylon. And they have this passage, and it points first to Israel's betrayal. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. This is what he's telling the people as they're exiting the, the promised land into captivity. And I'm going I'm to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue. And so I showed no concern for them. The first covenant was about adherence through the Levitical priesthood. And herein lies the fault. And the fault, it is important to know, the fault that he's saying here with the first covenant that he talks about in verse 8, he finds fault with them. The first covenant, had, it been, had the first covenant, verse 7, been faultless, there'd be no occasion for a second. The fault with the first covenant was not the wording of the first covenant. That was inerrant. That was given by God. The fault was with those who tried to keep it and failed miserably over and over and over again. The fault was with the other half of the covenant relationship. It wasn't with God. It was with the people. The shortcoming lied with the people who were faithless. With exception of a few good stretches, the people, when maybe the people had an exceptional king or perhaps a good judge in Samuel, except for those few good stretches, they wandered after any leader, false god, or shortcut to what their flesh wanted. Left to their own devices, the people wandered away over and over and over again. They committed adultery against God. And consequently, much of the Old Testament is about Israel and Judah's lack of adherence to the law. The flaw wasn't in God's word. It was the faithless way in which it was applied. And it was applied really as a system of hoops and checklists for many people. They said, well, if I, if I just do my sacrifices at the temple, then I can also do my sacrifices on the hillside. If I just bring a lamb every year on the Day of Atonement, then I can treat my wife however the heck I want. I can get a lot of them. I can betray the Sabbath. I can worship money. I can worship Baal. I can worship Asherah. I can do whatever my desires fit as long as I jump through these hoops. And any time we make following God a system of hoops, we will eventually end up burned out, frustrated, and ultimately deny God because we do not see his goodness and faith like those in the Old Testament did, like Daniel and David, Hezekiah, Elijah, and so many others. And so God 
really what he did with the first covenant in the Old Testament is he kept his word from the end of Deuteronomy. If you forsake me, this is what's going to happen. And God faultlessly kept his word and gave them over to the bitter fruit of their idolatry. And so in this new covenant that we're in, we need to learn from that example to not make following the Lord a system of hoops. Well, if I just go to church, if I bring my tithe, if I show up to ABF on time and bring just superior snacks to everyone else, then I'll be good. It's not about that. It's about believing the promises of God. And what we see here in the second half of this this extended passage from Jeremiah is God's persistent heart. We see the enacted pro- the promises of this better covenant, the better promises. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And it's all about transformation. We have not morally evolved since the days of Judges. It's not that we've like taken a few extra classes on good decision-making and positive thinking and we've really arrived. We're the same. We're just as wicked as the people who followed Jezebel and Ahab. The difference is God changes us. And it's a transformation God has done. I will put my words in their heart. I will, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. This is the word in us. This is a progressive, redemptive work of God. That is, we are in the word, as we're in the word regularly, here on Sunday mornings, whether it's an ABF, or, or here uh, in this time in the service, or if it's during the week in one of the Bible studies, if it's in your own quiet times, and hopefully you have someone you're checking in with on what you're reading in God's word and, 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 and how you, God is shaping you. As we are in God's word, he's going to, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, get that word ingrained in us, hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Let it be a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Let it illuminate what's going on around us. Let God's word show us what's around instead of us trying to prop ourselves up on a misuse of God's word to justify our actions. And he's going to be transforming us in that. And this is such a difference from the old covenant where the word was on stone tablets inside of an ark or in scrolls that only a priest could open and read. Here the word is not distant, but in the new covenant, in the better covenant, the word is interacting in our heart, changing us, building us into being God's people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This refrain from the Old Testament has come up again here in Hebrews. It comes up again in the, in the, new, in the new heavens and the new earth where finally we are dwelling with God in the city as his people and him as our only God. He makes us his people. This is a work that God does for us. He gives us this new covenant. He changes our hearts so that we can be his people. He fulfills his will and his desire in us for us to become his people. He does this through the better covenant enacted by the better priest so that when he looks at us through the sacrifice of Christ, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the righteousness 
of his son. And then we get to the transformation that he one day will do. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each other, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and his brother, saying, know the Lord. You know what he's saying here? We're not going to evangelize anymore. There's not going to be a single person. We get to the kingdom of God. This is a look ahead to the kingdom of God. There's not going to be a single person that you're going to be able to go to and say, do you know Jesus? Because everyone's going to know him. And that's a great and glorious thing. And there's so much that we just dream about with that. We're like, oh man, like we'll just, like, I'm not going to have to worry about the sketchy dude across the street from me anymore. I'm going to, like, everyone around me is going to be a brother and sister in Christ. But I want you to take a moment and think about it this way, too. There's going to come a day where you will no longer have the pleasure of introducing someone to Jesus. And as much relief as we feel with this one day, I'm going to be, I'm not, I'm not going to have to witness to anyone. Like, that job's going to be done. I hope that we also, as with the hope that we have there, I hope there's an inner like paradox within us and a tension that as much as I'm hoping for and longing for that day, I'm also a little sad that I won't be able to see someone for the first time say, that's who Jesus is? That's what he's done for me? That the re- there's going to come a day where the rejoicing over a new believer will end. And we long for that city where all of us know the Lord. But let's take advantage of the opportunity we have now. Because there's a joy we have now that won't be available then. There's a whole lot of joy then that's not available now. But there's one specific joy that we have available to us now that we won't have later. And so let's take advantage of this opportunity that we have now to actually talk to people about Jesus. So there's that transformation he will one day do, the full kingdom of God, and then there's a transformation that's happening every day. If we're honest, and if we're soft-hearted, it's probably happening multiple times a day. And that's the removal of sin. That every time, and this is why I say if we're soft-hearted, every time we're repenting, this transformation, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. The all-knowing God is willing to forget your sins and desiring to and able to because Jesus did the work on the cross to the point where he could say, it is finished. Through this new covenant and the finished work of Christ, the Lord does not look at you through the lens of your greatest failure. But how many times do we do that ourselves? We look in the mirror and we're like, what a screw-up. And your Father in heaven does not look at you and say the same thing. We get this glimpse through, the, through uh, Hebrews 11. And Moses, who murdered a dude. And Abraham, who was terrified, so he kept telling people his wife was his sister. And she was okay with that. This is some weird stuff. But we don't see their sin. We see their belief. And some of you need to quit living in a reality that God has forgotten. You need to quit living a life looking at what God has forgotten because you've 
This is provided if you've repented of your sin. Now, maybe you're living in a reality that he, he hasn't forgotten yet because you haven't been willing to repent of your sin and you need to. And there's some things you're holding on to that you're not willing to admit you were wrong on yet or you're afraid of what will happen if you confess that sin to another. You're not believing the promise in James 4 if we confess our sins, we're healed. So maybe you need to confess so you can live in that reality that God's forgotten that sin and there's a real tremendous freedom there. And this is a daily transformation that happens. And we follow Jesus based on what he did and not on what we try over and over and over to do in fixing our own problems. Because we don't have the skill, we don't have the resource, we don't have the ability. But he does. So let us only cry, Hosanna. Let us cry only to Hosanna, the one who can save us. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, and we're going to move to communion. Where, you know, and this is an act of remembering. This is not an act of. This is not an act of obtaining more or some sort of special grace from the Lord. This is an act of remembering. And so what we're doing is we're remembering now that Jesus, when he died on the cross, there was a sacrifice offered in heaven, something that had never been done before. There was a sacrifice offered in heaven. And through that sacrifice, we can come, we can have our sins forgiven and our sins forgotten. And that is tremendously good news. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your blessing. And we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins. You would forgive us of our lust and our greed and our anger and bitterness. Lord, that you would forgive us of our fear. In times where that fear has been tremendously unholy. Lord, would you forgive us of our love of the world and our desire to be like the world? Would you forgive us of our pride? God, we so often try to justify ourselves, try to stand right in our own eyes, where if someone just knew what I knew, then they'd say I was right all along and they'd get off my back. But Lord, that is so evil. So Lord, we just want to bring our pride and ask for you to forgive us. And forgive us of the times where we are unwilling to forgive others, Lord. And I pray that you would bring rightness to those relationships, at least to the point where we can forgive them and, and completely entrust you with that situation. And now, Lord, as we remember, as we partake in this cup and this bread, we thank you, Jesus that you accomplished the Father's will. That you laid yourself down for the forgiveness of our sins and to bring in a new and better covenant with great hope and great promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.